a lot of the security tools make an implicit assumption that, oh, you have an army of security and analysts. And look at this room, there's not an army of us, unfortunately. It's 100% of the PagerDuty security team is present right here in this room. We have a phrase we like on the team, which is we're here to make it easy to do the right thing. There's this entire class of security problems that only get harder as companies get bigger, your teams get bigger. To be successful in security, you need to work with other people. Security can't be solved by yourself, and if you try, you will fail. We're all in this together. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Uh, today, we have three guests, three awesome guests from the awesome PagerDuty uh, company to talk to us about uh, security and how it's handled in PagerDuty. Uh, so thanks for, for coming over. And uh, can I ask you first to introduce yourself? Maybe Arup will start with you. Sure. So uh, my name is Arup Chakrabarty. I head up our infrastructure engineering teams at PagerDuty, which of course includes security. I've uh, been at the company for about four plus years now. And so I've been involved in security, uh, whether I liked it or not, in one way or another over the last four plus years at PagerDuty. My name is Kevin Babcock. I'm principal security engineer at PagerDuty. And I like working to secure software as a service systems. I think it's an exciting challenge. Before PagerDuty, I worked at Box, and prior to that, I was at Symantec for quite some time building security products. Uh, hi, my name's Rich Adams. I'm a senior engineer on the security team. Uh, originally, I have a sort of an ops and a software developer background, and I got interested in security by playing CTFs and <laughs> getting into breaking things and realizing just how easy it was sometimes. And that got me excited to work on the other end of it and trying to stop those things from happening. Got it. Cool. That's, the CTF is always a sort of a fun part. We actually yeah. had an episode yeah. on CTF alone, uh, <laughs> which uh, sort of uh, worth checking out. And is this uh, how uh, uh, big a percentage are the people in the room right now of the PagerDuty security team? So uh, this is the entire PagerDuty security <laughs> 100%. team. One hundred percent. Yes, one hundred percent of the PagerDuty security team is Got present right here in this room. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, would, I do want to say, because the security team is in the room, it doesn't mean security stops. One of the <laughs> important aspect of our philosophy is that everyone ends up being involved in security, and we're going to talk more about that later. So, yeah, and Kevin, actually, that's a, that's a great, uh, great sort of segue into it. So, you know, we had a bit of a chat here about how you, how you work, and um, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, emphasis that you pointed out was around kind of collaboration and security. So um, maybe, Kevin, can I ask you, just like, how, how do you see... Security, you know, what's your sort of philosophy philosophy around security and how to handle it? I see the security team as the subject matter experts within the organization. That doesn't mean that that team is the only team that will work on it. In fact, to be successful in security, you need to work with other people. That's why there's three of us here today. Security can't be solved by yourself, and if you try, you will fail. And having that collaboration and that ability to work effectively with others outside your team from a security practitioner's perspective or others on a different part of an engineering team from a developer or DevOps practitioner perspective is very important because you really need to be able to approach 
the threats and risks of your business uh, from a holistic perspective, or you won't be able to defend against them effectively. How does that, um, so I, I definitely subscribe to that perspective, uh, but unfortunately, oftentimes we hear the whole conversation about builders versus breakers and, you know, how is the, uh, uh, the different mindset. Um, how, do you, how do you see, or even when you sort of talk to security people, how do you screen for, if you will, um, that different approach? How do you break through the, the, uh, the concern or the mindset of, well, you know, developers just don't understand security or, you know, these uh, security guys are just naysayers. You know, how do you, how do you connect the two? I feel it's an important part of my role to be a resource and someone who can educate and train other people. I'm here to help them make better decisions. And if people don't feel they're able to do that, that means I'm not doing my job. That's on me. One of the things we like is the security team doesn't just say no to everything. You can't have a, a team that sits there and someone says, oh, I want to uh, work on some production data uh, somewhere that isn't production, saying, you know, just go, no. Absolutely not. You figure out like, what, what is it that you're trying to accomplish and work to goals around that and work to ways to get them to be able to do their job properly while at the same time keeping your data secure. We have a phrase we like on the team, which is we're here to make it easy to do the right thing. We, you know, If we build any tooling, the, the intent is to not to hinder developers or hinder uh, anyone in to be able to do their job. It's to make it easy for them to just do the right thing naturally and without even thinking about it. Um, one of the things we've done is our own training internally. Um, at previous companies, I've always been frustrated at uh, security training because it was be a two-hour unskippable video and then mm -hmm. um, you know, obtuse use cases that never really come up. Some things are common sense and you, you don't pay attention. You kind of just skip. You keep it in a background tab, keep it muted, and then answer some questions at the end where you get an unlimited number of chances and you just keep going <laughs> until you get through. And it's usually to check some compliance checkbox somewhere. And one of the things we've done at PageDuty is done our own internal security training where we made it a bit more engaging, a bit more fun, and trying to teach people about real threats. Uh, one example is passwords. Um, people are generally pretty bad at choosing passwords, and it's usually a hard sell to get people to use password managers um, across a company. Um, so rather than giving people a list of rules, like you must do this, 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 and this, we framed it in a way of, here's what attackers do. Here's how you break passwords and demonstrate it with some fancy animations and like this is how easy it is to break passwords and you know people get more engaged that way and focus more pay more attention and then you find that they they actually come to you after and say hey you know that was really interesting i've actually started to use a password manager now and the idea is you know we've made it easy there for them to do the right thing and they've made the choice themselves and it's not something that we forced on them and said you must do this my favorite part of this training which rich delivered that was wonderful is after this happened we had someone come back and say, now that I understand how the attackers are working, I just spent three hours over the weekend going and changing all my passwords. <laughs> and to me, that is real impact because you're not only making people better and safer for the company, but you're improving the security in their own lives. And really, that's why we're here. Yeah, yeah that's excellent. I, I always find that uh, you know, security at the boring sense is all about risk reduction and it's sort of this... Uh, you know, not very exciting notion. The only advantage that it has is uh, hacking is cool. Uh, so if you can kind of leverage that into your benefit, and I, you know, I use that a fair bit when I give talks and all that. If you show an exploit, if you show a live exploit, if you let somebody do it, you know, just the educational value is dramatically, dramatically higher mm -hmm. uh, than you know, sitting down and talking about the bits and bytes. I think that's why CTFs are popular as well. I think Indeed. that's what originally wrote me into security was <laughs> seeing it happen is like, oh, this is yeah, which is a form really of trading almost by itself, yeah, right? Definitely. 
Um, and I guess, Arup, how do you see, because you cover like security, but you also touch a bunch of the, uh, the different uh, uh, elements or different functions in your team. Like, how do you see the, the division of, uh, of responsibility for security between that, uh, the different groups, right, between the ops, between security? Yeah, it's, so I, you know, I'm responsible for other teams as well at, at the company. And, um, you know, I firmly do believe that security is becoming more of this operational problem as opposed to a purely a security problem. And um, I look at a lot of the, the, the trends in that we've used in that kind of ops, DevOps space of the last 10, 15 years around automation, monitoring, metrics, learning, telemetry, all these wonderful things. And from a security aspect, you know, that's where we as a team, we keep investing a lot more into that. We invest a lot more in telemetry. Why? Because we want to be able to react quickly to problems when they come up. We invest a lot into uh, automation um, and making sure we have right tooling there. So it's very easy for us to figure out like, hey, do we have a set of servers that aren't subscribing by a certain rule set? If they are, well, okay, run Chef again, and it's going to get rid of that <laughs> that anomaly. And, and that's really important. And so... Uh, one thing that I've, it's been really interesting to watch security engineers change their habits over the last couple of years, just as, you know, I do believe that operations engineers had to change the way that they work. Security engineers are now changing the way they have to work too, which is very fun. Yeah, very much sort of bringing the, the DevOps revolution or the learnings from the sort of evolution of the ops world. Yeah, I, th uh, into I, DevOps I, th I think it's the here. learnings. Right? I, I, I don't view these problems as the same problems, of course not, right? <laughs> They're very, very different kind of, you Agreed. Know, very different ways to approach them and everything. But I do see that, um, uh, you know, in the security industry, there's a lot of opportunity to look at what a lot of companies went through in their DevOps transformations and look at, hey, what can we take from that and apply that towards security problems as well? I entirely agree, and I think like yeah, the learnings you want to uh, you need to adapt them, yes. but you also don't want to sort of stay focused. And you know, many security teams today are very uh, still sort of gate driven, or still about sort of stop here and work, which just doesn't work in a in a dev and ops world that tries not to stop, right. <laughs> tries to stop as little as possible, and uh, how you work. Um, so sort of fundamentally, when you look at the um, uh, at the activity of people. Uh, do you see engineers having um, explicit like OKRs or sort of goals that are security related, or are those still central? How do you how do you manage the the ownership, if you will, of uh, tackling a security problem? Who who would sort of have that ticket, uh, you know, sort of sit on their uh, their plate? I think it ranges depending on the problem. We have some some tickets that would be let's say uh, company wide things that are far reaching. Um, that would belong to uh, the security team and we would liaise with other teams and um, sort of get things into their uh, agile cycle to, to flex things out. These are tend to be broader reaching projects that are more strategic where we're building tooling or other infrastructure that will be used by other teams and we'll be supporting that or providing a service, but it's really something that everyone needs to be able to use and that will help us as an organization operate more effectively. Yeah, which comes yeah. back to sort of making security easy, making it easy to do the, the secure thing, the right thing. Yes, that's right. And then, yeah, at the other end of the scale, there are uh, little security changes, or not even little, or more uh, um, narrow security changes that have a stronger focus. And in those cases, uh, the team that's responsible for that particular area of the system would take ownership of it. Um, sometimes depending on the type of change, um, they would perhaps come to us on the security team and request help. Maybe we would embed ourselves with that team for a week or for their next sprint um, to help them through the door, but they would be ultimately responsible for owning the change. So it, it's, it ranges depending on the, the scale of the, the security problem or the change that we want to make. We do this as well for reactive and responsive security. 
For example, we have some tools that will be scanning for vulnerabilities in open source software, and that will trigger a notification in PagerDuty that then will be dispatched to the on-call person for the appropriate team. And this is a great way to expand the number of people working on security and caring about security in your organization. If you're listening to us today, I know that you care about security, but there's probably someone sitting next to you who doesn't care yet or doesn't know. And one way that we find you can get the entire team involved is by using this rotation and dispatch where when a particular problem comes in, whoever's up on call is going to have to understand and take care of the problem. And living through that experience is a great way to get people to start asking questions and learning more about why is this important? Why do we have to fix this quickly? What happens if I don't do this? So, you know, one thing you talked about was, you know, does everyone have OKRs or goals against security? And one of the, I think, things that's actually unique about our security team is so we actually work very closely with our sales team. And we actually do look at, um, you know, what are we doing from a security standpoint that, to support our sales team? So we actually have goals that are jointly tied between our sales engineering team and our security team. And the fun part there is that kind of gives you that sense of like, wow, security really does impact not just the engineering teams, not just the develop. It really does have an impact across the entire company. And, you know, it's I'm always torn on like where security should sit, where should the goals lie and all those things. Uh, but I always come, I always are on the side of like, you know, when in doubt, add another security goal for a team that's not on your, for your non-security teams. I think that is a good habit to have because I think it encourages the right behaviors across the organization. Yeah, excellent. I think um, security, one of the challenges with it is that you, that it's it's quiet as long as it's working, right? That's one of those <laughs> yeah. things that you only hear about it when it goes bad. Yes. Um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of trying to find opportunities to uh, to uh, to surface it when it helps, when it's a positive impact. Mm-hmm. And I think the you know not always fun security questionnaires uh, <laughs> is maybe a good example of that, yeah. which is you know you can kind of demonstrate how awesome you are. Uh, we do at Sneak, we do this uh, uh, badge that says you know the number of vulnerabilities, number of vulnerable dependencies you have on your repo. Uh, and we've gotten it's been growing. There's like you know hundreds of these you know, um, on the, on GitHub. And I think a lot of the premise is to say, hey, if you care about this problem and you've bothered uh, checking if you're using vulnerable dependencies and you bother maintaining that, you know you're awesome. Uh, why don't you show it off? You sort of help show the world that yeah. you know that you care and that they should care. Uh, and it's fine. You know, win a point. That's okay because you've made this effort uh, and you move it forward. So uh, it's it's great to hear. I love the mentality. Unfortunately, there aren't. A ton <laughs> of those that are sort of so easy to sort of point to. Yeah. So when when an, an issue actually does come up, right, or when when there's a, a problem, what's the process there? Who gets involved? You mentioned before a bit of an on-call uh, a page, but what happens after? Sure. Let's take an example of um, an external report. Uh, so a member of the public has emailed security at PageDuty saying they found a bug in our system. Uh, that page is the security on-call engineer. So 24-7, They'll get paged if a vulnerability uh, report comes in. Um, the first thing you'll do is obviously read the report, see what it's about. Um, if it's something that's uh, a known issue, something we've accepted the risk of, something that is not an issue, we can um, kill it and move on. Um, if it looks legitimate, we will try and reproduce it in some test accounts. If we're able to reproduce the vulnerability um, and that it, uh, it's real, we'll um, start engaging a response team We'll pull in um, the on-calls from whoever uh, are on teams that are affected by this. 
Um, again, they'll get paged 24-7 if it's 2 in the morning, which has happened before. Um, we'll page them. This, you know, this security report's been raised. We've replicated it. It's valid. We need to fix it ASAP. Um, they'll work on it. Um, deploy the fix as quickly as it can, and once it has, we'll get back to the person who reported us, say, it's fixed, can you confirm from your side as well? Maybe there was some nuance to the way they'd done it, some edge case we've missed that they didn't let us know about. Um, so we always find it important to ask them, like, can you confirm as well that it's <laughs> fixed? Sometimes they don't get back to us, sometimes they do. Um, and then generally, once that's fixed, we'll consider it closed. Um, but we'll also then kick off a, a sort of a post-review task to see if um, there are potentially any other similar vulnerabilities elsewhere in our code base. Um, let's say, I don't know, is a cross-site scripting on a particular field um, that got missed somewhere or wasn't covered by automation. We'd kick off a review process to like, okay, we need to scan everything and just make sure that this same um, bug didn't in get introduced elsewhere in the system as well. Um, but that's usually done business hours next day. We wouldn't keep yeah, it. Yeah, might not be rushed. Just yeah. to to confirm, like you, you mentioned, there were a bunch of we's uh, in there, like, you know, we do this or we do that. Like yeah. the, so the vulnerability report today still goes to the security team to assess it? Or yes. does that so they, page the on-call uh, ops person? Uh, it's the on-call security person. So the, the three of us are on a security on-call rotation. We essentially triage all of the inbound security reports. If it is something that is operational-based, or let's say it's something where we we don't know how to reproduce it ourselves, maybe we don't have the technical expertise, it's something very deep in a particular system, we'll page the on-call responsible for that system. If it's an operational, that will be the operations team on-call. Um, this often ends up being a collaborative effort. So something may come in, and I don't understand the other system well enough to know exactly what yeah. the impact is, but I've seen this class of vulnerability 10 times before, and I know the ways it might be manifested and what the actual impact to the organization would be. And so I'll bring that knowledge, which is, here's how bad it could be. Here's some other ways this might be exploited. And I'll share that with the system owner, who then will tell me, here's how our system works. And oftentimes say, oh, I can do that here, and I can also do it in this three other places. Let's make sure that they all get fixed. And the, and the important thing here is that that the security team is not the one responsible for resolving the issue. We're responsible for triaging it and initially assessing, like, what do we think, the you know, could this get worse? What's the attack vector? All that. But then what Kevin said, it's that collaborative piece that's super important to us. That, And, you know, we've been actually very fortunate. I can't think of a single instance in the last couple of years where one of our one of our collaborative engineering teams said, no, like, you deal with it instead. I, I cannot honestly. Yeah, I don't think that's ever come up. I at least not while I've been at Facebook. Yeah, I can't honestly remember a single time. And and I think that, you know, it's kind of one of those, maybe it's the shared misery piece of like, well, you know, Rich, you're up at 2 a.m., fine, I'll be up also. <laughs> and uh, But I do think it creates that that shared ownership, which is, it's really hard to do that well. And that's something that we're, we're constantly trying to find the right balance. And for us right now, the right balance is security team triages it and assesses the vulnerability and then immediately starts dispatching and getting additional people involved. Yeah. I, I firmly believe that collaboration comes from conscious effort to be a teammate who can support your other colleagues. Yep. For example, I've gone and embedded myself with an engineering team and worked with them for a number of sprints to help them solve their projects because that allows me to have the right context for how that team works, understand the problems they're facing, and now I have knowledge that I can use to design better security tools that fit right into that team's workflows. Similarly, they get a sense of me, how I'm working. I ask them questions about security, and they start having a different perspective than they may have about some of the challenges that the security team is looking at. And now I have relationships, and people will come to me with questions, 
and I can use that as a way to identify security problems that I might never have known existed. Yeah, and it's definitely an approach of uh, or a feeling that we're all in this together. Yeah, like you, I never feel bad about paging someone on another team, even at two in the morning, um, if I'm not sure about how their system works and can't accurately determine whether this security threat is valid or not. And again, I I have no qualms about paging these two either, <laughs> if uh, I'm not convinced that I've replicated this properly or anything like that. We have a a motto that I <laughs> I like: uh, it's never hesitate to escalate. So it's always hit the button if you're unsure. And yeah, yeah that, and I've never had anyone. Uh, on any team complain about that. It's always been, oh yeah, well. And this goes both ways. I recall a time when an engineer started our security incident response process just because he found something suspicious. He wasn't sure how bad it was, but he knew it looked suspicious and he wanted to make sure that it was covered. And I was very happy that he made that decision and that we were paged and brought in to respond quickly so we could look at the issue and determine what we should do. Yeah. yeah, I love that approach. You know, like First of all, that one is very much the sort of the, if you see something, say something, right? And it, <laughs> and it implies it's almost better than being willing to be woken up in the middle of the night because it means unsolicited they've considered security, uh, which I think is maybe like an even bigger achievement uh, yeah. in it. Um, and I like it. I guess the way maybe I would echo back is it's, it's less about sort of educating developers about security. It's about collaborating with development for security. And that does imply learning on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, you know, something that comes down from security into dev. You have to mm-hmm. absorb knowledge in the other side uh, and sort of adapt your own knowledge into the uh, the context uh, that they would include it. Um, let's uh, sort of shift like down maybe in the stack to go because we talked a lot about, you know, first sort of the philosophy and then sort of practices you do in in the team, which seems uh, uh, super super useful. Uh, let's talk tools. You know, practically speaking, you run this. What are some notable tools that you have in your sort of security stack uh, that you use? Rich, I'll hand this one off to you. Sure. Um, to most of that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about two-factor authentication. Sure. Uh, it's a long-running project we've had going. Um, specific tools we use um, for uh, our two-factor on SSH is Duo, Duo Security, um, using their PAM Duo module. Mm-hmm. And that is specifically tied to YubiKeys, which are the nice little uh, USB hardware tokens. Um, We went through a few different options on uh, methods of two-factor, starting with uh, the basic TOTP, the six-digit Google Authenticator style codes. And that was very, uh, there was a lot of friction with that. If if an engineer wants to log into a server to debug an issue, they've got to pull out their phone, they've got to type in the six-digit number, and it was uh, quite a painful process. Um, these are just to clarify. These are like for two-factor authentications for internal systems, like as you yes. access uh, your own sort of ops yeah to a- to access our own yeah. systems I- internally. And we went to the Duo Push, which is where they send a push notification to your phone, and you have to approve it. Better, but not great. And we worked with a few beta testers in our engineering teams and people who SSH a lot and try and find out the pain points and how they use it. And there was a lot of negative feedback on using push and TOTP and things like that. Uh, we tried YubiKeys, and that was a, a much smoother approach. Everyone really liked that it's just a simple tap of the button. So what's a YubiKey, Rich? I explained that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a USB hardware token that you stick in and press a button on it, and it does stuff. It does magic that just works. <laughs> Should wait for Apple. <laughs> um, well, we had a lot of um, a, a lot uh, more positive feedback once we started to roll out YubiKeys instead. So that's when we decided to let's just get YubiKeys for everyone and uh, pre-enroll them. 
And we've had a lot of success with that now. So all of our engineering organization is using this method, um, support engineers, uh, sales folks, anyone that could possibly access our infrastructure for any way, whether they're jumping through a gateway host or anything, uses YubiKeys and two-factor authentication with Duo. Yeah. So that's been uh, really good for us to strengthen the um, the access to our infrastructure in a in a way that doesn't too negatively impact. Obviously, you've still got to put in the YubiKey, which is an extra step that, than you had before. But I think everyone recognizes that it's we're getting a huge security benefit for not too much of an extra hassle. I think fundamentally, security does imply introducing some extra work, yeah. but putting in the effort to make it as usable as it can be, make it sort of simple, as you pointed out earlier on, sort of make it easy to do the right thing yeah. uh, is, uh, is a big deal. So this was uh, just, you know, again, for sort of uh, helping everybody understand sure. and, and mimic maybe <laughs> uh, in their org uh, how it works. So this, is, this sounds like an, an initiative or sort of all of this exploration was done by, uh, by the security team, sort of driven to be enterprise-wide, but the, uh, the application of the security control, if you will, which is the use of YubiKey, is now company-wide, you know, outside tech, outside, you know, just sort of including, as you pointed out, sort of sales yeah. support and the likes. The way, the way we rolled it out, I think, was important as well. It wasn't a... Everyone gets a YubiKey today and go through it. We trialed it with a few sort of power users first. And obviously, we didn't go to them and say, you will use this from now on. We solicited volunteers who were excited about trying it out. And they tried the painful methods first as well, and that's how we got the feedback. And as you know, it, it hasn't been an entirely painless process. There are some issues with certain tools don't work well with it. We're having to find workarounds for those. And it's it's all kind of been a, a learning process. And But rolling it out in stages with some key users first, ironing out the kinks before you get to the sort of non-engineering teams and people who perhaps don't know how to use an SSH tunnel workaround for some tool and having to find more easier approaches to, to work around any pain points there. Got it. Cool. And maybe, uh, so this is great for sort of two-factor auth. I don't know, uh, maybe some other tools uh, that are that are used that people might, uh, might care to consider themselves? Like for, you know, going back to my point earlier around treating security problems as operational problems, we have that full suite as well that helps us there. So things like Chef, Splunk, AWS tooling, and us, and uh, those kind of audit toolings they use for those operational problems, we use them for security challenges as well. So we have uh, monitors in Splunk constantly running, looking for malicious behavior in our audit logs and looking for malicious behavior mm -hmm. in the access logs as well. So um, that whole suite also. So Chef is an interesting one. I mean, it's very much sort of an obstacle. How do you uh, how do you use Chef to uh, to for a security uh, purpose? It's important for a security team to be able to react quickly and move quickly. And automation like Chef or Puppet or whatever else you're using gives you that benefit. You already have it in place for your infrastructure to improve operations. Take advantage of that to allow security to work faster and more effectively as well. For example, if you want to roll out a patch across the entire infrastructure, you can configure Chef and push out that change and be confident that it gets everywhere and it's been applied universally and it's not something you have to worry about anymore. Yeah, I like that. I think in general, in, in continuous deployment or in sort of continuous environments or fast-moving environments, uh, a lot of the pushback you know, in those sort of claiming DevOps hurts security uh, is that there's a lot of change and that change introduces risk. Uh, but... I think one of the best claims on the other side is to say, alongside with that change or that sort of faster change comes faster response uh, and comes the ability to respond to issues uh, quickly and across the entire system. So yeah, I like Chef. 
So, so uh, Adam Jacob was on the show and we talked about uh, InSpec and how uh, there's some tools that are built into it that really try to do it. And I'd love to sort of see more security features uh, coming into those tools as as, uh, as as good sort of just sort of checkboxes and easy-to-use yeah. capabilities. So, so you know, one thing you just said around increase of the rate of change introduces more risk. I do agree with that. But one thing that a lot of these tools do support is auditability. And so it's that ability to go back through and figure out, hey, at, at, you know, at, on this day, at this time, what changes were being made. And so while, yes, that risk is increasing over time or it's very hard to keep up sometimes, when you do have to respond quickly, when you do have to react, it's actually much easier if you have the automation in place that allows you to move faster in the first place. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of security teams make the mistake where they uh, insert friction and they'll They'll reduce the amount of automation sometimes, again, with the wonderful intent of reducing risk, but a lot of times they actually end up creating more risk in the long run because they've lost that auditability because they don't have that automation in place. How do you, that's a really good point, and how do you in general see the delta or, you know, what's your view on prevention versus response, right, on sort of thing, putting something as a blocker uh, as opposed to... Um, responding quickly to issues. Oh, I just asked Kevin, what should I do here? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I have an answer for you. <laughs> Security fundamentally comes down to risk assessment. And in a corporation or an enterprise, you need to enable the business to make the right decisions for security. And if you are shutting down operations and you have no ability to change because everything's locked down to the point where you're very confident, you know the state of everything and it's running correctly, you haven't shipped any new products, you haven't updated your product, your customers are complaining, the business is not going to be successful. Security has to be about understanding the context of the business and the risk that it's willing to take on and making the right decisions for where you put in place controls and protection to reduce your risk and make sure that you're always operating right at that brink of what you're willing to accept but no higher. That's an excellent statement. I like to use the phrase that you can be secure all the way to bankruptcy, uh, which which is not uh, not sort of very uh, helpful as a as a business methodology, <laughs> even though you know you might be uh, able to pass all the audits uh, mm -hmm. that come by. Um, cool. So we talked about a bunch of uh, tools that you use. You know, maybe before we uh, kind of close that section off, just talk a little bit about what would disqualify a tool for you. I mean, mm -hmm. you talked about some of the good things. What type of properties have you seen in security tools that you saw that and said, yeah, if this tool behaves this way or if I'm seeing this property, um, I'm not going to use it. So we've had tools where it's been very difficult to integrate them because they they might not play nice with other tools that we've already integrated. Um, and that's usually, it, it, it might be bad luck on the part of that vendor that we implemented the other tool first and then you know they both, both don't play nice with one another. But generally, if we can't figure out a way to get it integrating our systems within a week, we pretty much just cut our losses and move on because it's not worth investing additional time there. Um, the other one, especially with security tools, is the false positive rate. If things are paging us saying you have a critical issue and we find out we don't a lot, that's introducing a, a lot of on-call burnout to us and is something that uh, we try to avoid as much as possible. So any, any tool that is needlessly, maybe 90% you know, or above is noise, then it's just not useful to us because we we can't filter out the noise in it in an easy way. And again, we've had tools in the past where you know they're great, but they're too much noise, and we can't find a way to filter it out properly. And it's just it reduces usefulness. 
And it goes from when you see an alert from that tool, you think, oh, great. You know, I must get on this immediately to, oh, it'll be that thing again, and you ignore it. Mm -hmm. and at that point, especially for a security tool, it it's lost all usefulness. Yeah, just the word cred wolf. Yeah. When, when you lose trust in the tool, then it's you have to move on. We've also encountered some challenges as an early adopter. There are some very good tools out there for DevOps-type organizations, like you mentioned TwistLock earlier, Signal Sciences. We've also evaluated some other tools where it was very early on in the product cycle, and there's an advantage in looking at that because you may get a new kind of protection that's not broadly available. You're also taking on some risk because that company is still new, it's still establishing the product, and in some cases, we definitely saw the potential and we wanted the functionality, but as Rich was saying, the time to integrate was too high, and we ended up pushing off and saying, well, we're going to keep an eye on this technology and reevaluate six months down the road, mm -hmm. a year down the road, but it's not something we can do today. Okay, there's sort of an ROI type of calculation, yeah. right? There's just the anticipate uh, more investment necessary in it. Yeah, and I think another important thing is uh, responsiveness of support as well. We've we've certainly had tools where we might have we've hit a roadblock. The documentation isn't telling us what we need to do. It's not obvious uh, what we need to do to continue on something. We'll reach out to a, a support team and won't get a response for a week. And at that point, we've we've moved on. And it might turn out the response is, oh, just you know, flip this configuration settings. Like, oh, that would have been easy. But, but once the week's gone, it's kind of like, well, we've moved on now to other things. Mm -hmm. There's definitely sometimes a missed opportunity there if there's, if it's not a very uh, responsive support that that can affect whether we end up using the tool or not. Cool. Yeah. I guess the I love that all of these definitions are uh, bread and butter for any dev tooling or ops mm -hmm. tools out there, uh, and unfortunately, not at all the default or the given for security <laughs> tools that are out there. So that's maybe another sort of evolution the ecosystem needs to go through. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting because like for so for we were talking about earlier about accountability in our environment, how we we have individual teams account for the code that they ship. Um, a lot of the security tools make an implicit assumption that, oh, you have an army of security and analysts <laughs> that are looking at this, right? They make that assumption. Yeah. And I don't know, you can look at this room, there's not an army of us, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> and so it's it's always interesting where I'll see a tool out there and, I, and you know, they, they'll make some bold claim and I look at it, I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Wait a second, you're expecting me to have an army of like, you know, 20 mm -hmm. people watching these screens constantly, that doesn't work for our organization. And you know, one of the lessons I've learned the hard way, unfortunately, multiple times is you're, you don't look at uh, which audience the tool is built for when you go to buy it. Mm -hmm. And so you end up buying it and you and then realize after the fact that you were not the audience yeah. <laughs> that, that the tool was built for. And so you end up again with integration challenges going beyond whatever it is. But yeah. Um, that's something that at least for me, at least I've tried to be more mindful of going forward. It's is this tool that I'm buying was it built for our audience, and that audience is different for each company. Yeah, it's different. Changes each, for it. Yeah. There's a promising new set of tools out there that I think are very interesting that enable people who may not be full security specialists to do security work, and these are the security orchestration products like Phantom or Exabeam and, and others that are emerging in the last few years, and I think. There's a lot of promise for being able to implement these to get higher leverage out of your security organization by enabling people without a security background to effectively do security tasks. Yeah, no, I I, um, I, I love hearing this. this is entirely 
Uh, for me, uh, like when I founded Sneak, the whole definition was to say Sneak is a dev tooling company that does security. You know, it, it absolutely must, no matter what it does, it needs to be operated on a daily basis by developers, yep. by DevOps teams. Uh, you know, if it's being used by security, we've we've lost. It needs the guidance, it needs the expertise. And it's because like you want developers to engage with security, but uh, you can't expect developers to be the the experts uh, in security every time. And when we don't have expertise, we revert to tools. The tools should sort of bundle in some of that expertise for us and then make it accessible for us. So love to sort of hear the, uh, the, the philosophy of it and sort of hear it working in action. Um, so I think this was super useful before I uh, let you go and, and kind of continue securing pager duty. Uh, I, uh, well, actually, you don't need to because the whole team, the rest of the team is doing that already. Um, uh, it's fully um, secure. There is nothing left to do. Yeah, <laughs> so can I, uh, I like to ask my guests before I, uh, before I uh, let, let them go uh, to ask for kind of one tip if you're sort of talking to a, a dev team that's trying to, or ops team, trying to uh, up-level their uh, their uh, security uh, uh, caliber, you know, sort of the security foo. Uh, what's the sort of the one tip, the one pet piv that you would uh, highlight right now? Maybe, Rich, I'll start with you. Um, sure. For a, a development team, I think it's key to get the team excited about security. As uh, if, if a team just sees it as a hindrance and something like, oh, we have to do this security thing, it's, it's never going to kick off. I think these things work best when people take it on their own, on their own initiative, and then they like pitch the idea to other people who take it on and take it on. And it kind of it grows that way. So one of the things I always like pitching to teams is work from the side of an attacker. Um, I mentioned CTF things at the beginning. Uh, play a CTF. Try and uh, execute a buffer overflow vulnerability. See just how easy it is to do these things. Try and do some cross-site scripting if it's a web application, some cross-site request forgery, just to see how simple these things are to, to break. And it's always... At least with engineers and development teams, I always think it's very exciting when you you break that first thing. You're like, oh wow, it was it was that easy. It's like I just did this one little SQL injection. Now I've got all our data. Huh? Maybe I should fix that. And that that generally gets people excited. I think there's a lot, of, especially in sort of movies and TVs, is like yeah. this hacker mentality, and you know people want to do the cool thing. Yeah. And it's like I think seeing that work in in real life and seeing things being exploited is always gets people excited and want yep. to protect those things and defend against those things. Excellent so, tip. How about yourself, Kevin? To do security well, you need to take it in context. You need to know what your valuable assets are and what's at risk. It's not enough to say, we, we need to have strong passwords, we need to use encryption, we need two-factor authentication. Unless you understand why you're implementing those controls, you're missing the point. The reason we went and implemented two-factor authentication for SSH is because we're concerned about this very common attack vector where a phishing email comes in, someone deploys malware on a machine, and then there's lateral movement into the production network. We know that all of our most sensitive data is inside that production network, and so we're interested in putting additional controls in place so that if and when there's malware operating inside the corporate network, it's very, very difficult to move laterally and get at the most valuable assets. Uh, there's this entire class of security problems uh, that only get harder as your companies get bigger, your teams get bigger. And uh, you know, having seen multiple companies now go through these crazy growth stages and then they bolt security on as an after effect, you're you're signing up for an uphill battle there. And, and and starting early doesn't mean like you know dedicating you know fifty percent of your workforce. No, it, it, what that might look like early on is you have uh, a single engineer that cares about this 
early on at the company's history, let them spend part of their time on it, you know, enable them and let them be successful. And that it just pays dividends down the line. Um, If you really try to think of security, like, oh, we're going to go out and buy a security product. We're going to go buy a security team. We're going to bolt this on. It rarely works. So if if you're starting to thinking about it, um, chances are you should have been doing it yesterday. So just do it today and, and, and keep, Keep investing in this stuff as best as you can. So, uh, Arup, Kevin, Rich, thanks for uh, for joining us today. This has been super, super insightful. Uh, um, before you sort of disappear here, if somebody, one of our listeners has questions for you, wants to sort of follow up, you know, get some of your uh, further advice out of band, how can they uh, How can they reach you? Uh, so, I am R underscore Adams on Twitter. That's one D. And I am uh, Arup Chak, A-R-U-P-C-H-A-K on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, but I would be happy to entertain conversations if you reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can find me under my name, Kevin Babcock, and just make a connection. Perfect. Okay, well, thanks a lot. And for all those uh, joining us uh, online, I hope you enjoyed the episode and join us for the next one. Thanks. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 